Hey folks, welcome to Utopian Cartography for a very, very, very special expedition into the unknown regions of the future to discover hope, real hope, beyond the illusions handed down to us by previous generations that greed is good and war is inevitable because there will never be enough to go around. As George Carlin said, it's all bullshit, folks. It's bad for you. I'm your host, Neon Felicity. I'm here to tell you that we can have a positive future. So yeah, today's episode is actually going to be a lot different than I usually do, um, because you know the format of this show is to do interviews um, with big thinkers about the future. Um, but as a lot of you know, I've been working on a book for a while now. So I think I'll just I think basically what the structure of this, what I'm about to do, is basically lay out each chapter of the book and kind of give an overview of the reason for the like like what the point of each essay is and and then at the end i'll kind of weave it together to explain why i needed to go through all of that because you know utopia is a big idea a very big idea uh, the biggest perhaps um that humans have ever grappled with the idea of an a an ideal society like where are we going what are we doing with civilization you know i always like you know the, the, the purpose of philosophy is to ask the big questions and i think that's part of why philosophy as a discipline has been suppressed so badly over the last you know couple thousand years since they murdered socrates basically <laughs> They saw that that was a very disruptive mode of thinking. Uh, you can't have people thinking that big. So they kind of pushed philosophy down to into theology. And, you know, basically so, so that the only people who are asking the big questions are people who are, you know, venerating a god that, you know, we can, we don't know if we know anything about. My point is just that, sorry, let me back up. By relegating philosophy to a minor place in society and elevating theology what it has done is it's put the focus on creation as it was long ago in a time when where we can barely ascertain as to what that was and and try to explain how we got from the perfect state that god created us in to this fallen state that we're in now because even the neoliberals acknowledge that some shit's fucked up, you know, like the people who are in this uh, delusion of markets and the capitalism is going to solve everything. If we just, you know, get the government out of the way. Like that we've been in that utopian cycle. You know, Reagan was the utopian, but it's just a, a backwards utopia. You know, it's a, it was a, you know, they fantasized about stripping the community out of <laughs> and you know utopia just means no place you know it, it, it means it's a non-existent realm which is used as a poetic or rhetorical device to paint a picture of a society that we ought to try to move towards we ought to try to transform our society to look more like and so and they you know they say that's you know politics the art of the possible so anyways <laughs> because I, I i think that a lot of i think that um i think it's really important to think about utopia and the reason that it's um a central feature of my work and the 
core of my book and this podcast is because I think that the primary way that we've been held back, the primary way that they've been able to loot the society over the last 40 years in the way that they have is because they've been able to shape our perceptions of what's possible. They've been able to cripple our imagination. By you know, that was, big, that was a big part of the drug war and prohibiting psychedelics was because they were opening people. You know, psychedelics were opening in the '60s were opening people's imaginations about what was possible for civilization. And then they were like, "Hey, hold on, no, this is bullshit, not good enough." You know, and so that's part of why they started the drug war was so that they could cripple that utopian imagination that was disrupting their profit streams basically you know the business as usual and it was and it's even a bigger thing than even just economics all interpersonal relationships you know like all the dominance hierarchies that were in that were in place that kept society stable but you know oppressive but stable and so the, the all this utopian ideation in the 60s was dangerous and that's why they had to put a lid on it um so i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself um <laughs> so yeah chapter one the times they are a change in so basically I, this is where i lay out the evolutionary perspective and i talk about how a fixed mindset that you know we have the capacities that we have and therefore we should just manage our lives and society you know according to that Whereas, you know, a growth mindset or what I call the evolutionary perspective is, you know, it sees that nothing is fixed, you know, like the whole, the nature of reality is to evolve. That's the whole point of, I mean, I don't know, I shouldn't say it's the whole point of existence, but it just is the core nature of existence is to evolve. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind when we're talking about politics, um, because, you know, nothing is, nothing's ever set in stone, you know, um, any student of history knows that things change, you know, <laughs> and we're in a moment like that now, you know, um, it's a paradise or oblivion situation where, you know, the, the status quo has failed, you know, the, the center kind of cannot hold, you know, as, as the anarchists say, you know, the, the neoliberal center that, you know, says the status quo is great and let's just keep humming along business as usual that has utterly failed you know? <laughs> and so that's part of why we see this you know i mean it's the world reckoned with it with hillary clinton losing you know hillary clinton was the ultimate paragon of centrism corporate centrism and she couldn't beat a clown you know of, of like an absurd you know parody of a politician <laughs> tv game show <laughs> And, and Hillary Clinton was, you know, this like behemoth, you know, you know, ran the fucking war machine for a while, you know, <laughs> like, and she couldn't beat this clown. So, you know, the old answers no longer work here. And also, you know, within that is the inevitability of technological evolution. Like these things are just proceeding ahead, you know, and an inherent feature of the way they operate uh, in new technological developments is to disrupt so this techno this exponential technological evolution which is you know inevitable and proceeding at a predictable pace it's still 
is very disruptive because we have all these systems in place that have been set up over the last couple hundred years to replace the old feudal systems of the Middle Ages, you know, theocracies. So we set up all these institutions across society over the last couple hundred years, and a lot of them are breaking down. A lot of them are being disrupted by this new technological paradigm that we're in. And so since we're still in late-stage capitalism, the way that these technological developments have unfolded has been to further accelerate the already rapid centralization of financial wealth into the hands of a few. So it's like this... So now we got fucking, you know, Jeff Bezos with $160 billion. Well, most people have nothing. <laughs> so it's like it's a, the exponential acceleration of technology is exponentially increasing income inequality too because, we're, because of the systems that have been set up. So that, that's just to introduce the concept of, you know, you can't take anything for granted. You know, the, the, that's the, the nature of the times that we're living in living in end times, as uh, Zizek calls it. So yeah, and then chapter two is wake up and smell the apocalypse. So I explore the nature of apocalyptic times. What does it mean to live in the end times of a paradigm? You know, um, because, you know, it, it's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around because we, we are all raised on a certain, you know, set of assumptions about the way the world works and when circumstances change it can be very difficult for us to understand what's going on because we're if we're viewing it through these old this these old lenses you know so i go back to the birth of our paradigm that we're in the so with that evolutionary mindset that things are changing to help illustrate that this time we're in can end and we can birth a new thing. Um, I, I go back to 500 years ago, four, you know, four or 500 years ago, when this current paradigm was being born and the previous paradigm was dying. So that was an apocalypse. So I go back to like, you know, the printing press and explain why that the printing press directly led to the Protestant Reformation less than 50 years later. And so the purpose of that, to look back at the birth of the modern nation state and capital and, and the way that our society is set up now, is because, you know, when people defend the system as it is today, they often look to the past, you know, and they say, you know, it's got to, we got to leave it the way it is, or we're going to end up the way this shitty totalitarian system in the past worked, you know, and, and I think that's false, you know, uh, I think we can have a new thing. That's what, that's part of the purpose of utopianism is to imagine a future, you know, that's not that that's not dictated by the past, you know, the, where, you know, we can forge something new. And frankly, we don't have a choice. <laughs> so yeah, and then, uh, and then chapter three, we think with myths. So this is, this is about a chapter about mythology and about the fundamental way that human cognition works and how it functions like a computer. And culture is the operating system, you know, and it's fundamentally structured around story. That's part of why 
storytelling is so important and it's part of why the bible survived for thousands of years as part of why hollywood movies are making billions of dollars <laughs> disney in 2019 alone had five billion dollar blockbuster movies in one year one company <laughs> so storytelling is a big deal <laughs> we can we literally cannot underestimate how important story is to everything about the way uh, about the way we think about the way we experience the world about the way the world is actually set up you know how it comes to be set up you know it that's really what that's what magic is you know um a lot of times people put a k at the end of magic to 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 denote actual magic and you know when i think of that i just think of telling stories you know i think it's a magical act to tell a story because you're literally casting a spell you know casting some wish casting as uh, some people say you're like speak you can speak of reality into being and even even things like law you know law are just words that are spells that are cast you know into law and then a guy with a gun will come and force it you know that's the how that's the real actual magic you know <laughs> but modernity came with a false sense of post-mythological epistemology so we had this idea like when after the scientific revolution people got, you know started thinking oh yeah no now we're being objective you know we're gonna set up this system you know where you know people are completely rational you know because i don't know if you guys know this but the the initial assumption of all economic theory is that people are inherently rational <laughs> so and um i don't know if you've been uh paying any attention to what's happening in the world but uh people don't uh, don't appear to be particularly rational <laughs> in general <laughs> they operate according to story and but so we set up this education system where we're where we teach the kids history and we teach them whatever civilization and economics and we present and the schools present it as if it's like these are the facts this is just how it is you know and it's not a myth but you know you know, they even teach the shit of the George, George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and they always say, can't tell a lie and whatever. That's a myth. Like, these are, and, and even the, even Thanksgiving, you know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago. Thanksgiving is one of the most, like, mythologically contrived phenomena in in, in modern society and, and ever. <laughs> They're, oh yeah, it was this all all friendly, you know? The pilgrims were they were showing their thanks to the indigenous people. We're we're not presented with it in school and in, in you know in elementary school. We're not presented with you know the founding of America as a human rights abuse you know as a like grand atrocity on the level of the holocaust <clears throat> they don't they don't explain that and the extent to which they don't is because they're creating a 
mythological connection to an idea of America, you know, and in a lot of ways, so that we'll not have solidarity with other countries that American corporations want to go extract their natural resources from in the future. So we they don't want us to think about the thing that happened already to this continent and that we're already reaping the benefits of and only have a country as a result of because it's the same exact framework that's continuing to go on in Afghanistan right now, for example, <laughs> you know, where they're producing 80% of the world's opium while there's a opioid crisis and we got U.S. troops guarding poppy fields in Afghanistan because America has become so oppressive that there is an epidemic of diseases of despair and suicide rates are through the roof and everybody's just trying to sedate themselves so they need prescription opioids to quiet their mind uh, uh, so it doesn't continue to Imagine what the fuck it's doing. It, this country is doing. <laughs> it's all connected, you know. It's like it's all, the myth of America and Thanksgiving, and the, it's all connected to what is happening right now. So that's that's why they teach history in the way that they do, so that they, we can just brush by it, and so people don't really think about it that much. And in the '60s, people started waking up to this. You know, this was a central to the renaissance and the the awakening the the counter culture was trying to go counter to that to this you know imperial oppressive thing that you know we we found ourselves in the midst of you know i, I obviously i say we i wasn't alive then but i've got kindred spirits in those 60s man uh, i feel like the moment we're in now you know we've got to look to the 60s for inspiration because they were able to, I mean, there was a backlash, obviously, and a lot of more suffering with is the results of the backlash to that, but there was a, we need a new summer of love, you know? But uh, anyways, I digress. Um, and this is where, you know, we I, I talk about a little bit how myths can unite and myths can divide, you know? Like, the idea, like I was just saying about patriotism is a uniting myth and I guess a dividing myth at the same time because it's used for, for social cohesion that is only being engineered for the purposes of creating a team to go raid the resources of another team or whatever. Um, so the rule, but the ruling class who's actually running this shit and like reaping the, you know, the material rewards of all this division you know, they've been using identitarian politics as a divide and conquer strategy for hundreds of years. That was the whole point of slavery. Because <laughs> they knew that the, that humans have an, an instinctive xenophobia that has to be intellectually vanquished. And so if they can just not do that, that work of trying to create this pluralistic society or whatever if they can keep us fighting with each other, you know, then they can just keep running off to the bank. That's, that's all they really want. You know, like, you know, people talk about how, you know, like the never Trumpers, like they wish Trump wouldn't tweet the way he does. And, but they got the tax cuts and uh, that's all that really matters. You know, <laughs> you know, the scapegoating of immigrants is ugly and it's, it's it's kind of gauche, but we shouldn't do it. But, uh, you know, it's like, as long as we get the tax cuts. <laughs> but anyways, like, yeah, so this whole fascist shit of scapegoating immigrants is just, 
it's just a new modern day iteration of the same thing they were doing in slavery, pitting the white field workers against the black field workers <laughs> by giving them different statuses and making them oppressed poor white people identify with their with the ruling class so as not to be in solidarity with the slaves you know right but i i raise that as an example of the power of mythology and how how destructive it can be if it's not intentionally used to unite because it can go either way you know like technology is morally agnostic you know it's neutral it can be used for good and bad and mythology was a technology invented by early humans when we first started making noises with our mouths you know and people were like oh we could create a language and then they're like oh yeah and then and then they started making stories so given that these things are all myths you know everything we, we think with myths that's the point of this chapter uh, so given that we might as well start looking a little further at how much freedom we can get you know freedom from work Automation's coming, yo. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Later chapters. <laughs> and I realize I'm going a little bit longer than I expected to on each of these. So if I do that for all 14 chapters, then it's going to be a really long video. So <laughs> I'm going to speed it up and do like a little bit of a shorter breakdown of each following chapters. So chapter four, uh, no spectators beyond this point. This is a chapter about participatory culture and the emergence of it. Because, you know, we didn't, it wasn't always the case you know that everybody was involved in the production of culture it, it, it was back in the day before the invention of rec recorded art back in oral culture it was you know common for you know everybody to be involved um but that was something that we had lost until the 60s and the, this awake this renaissance I, I i truly do think of the, the 60s as a renaissance you know we're still you know you know, we're not that far from that time so we're, we're still in i still believe we're in that renaissance now you know um go to music festival you can see that the 60s are alive and well in some pockets you know like there's like these little there's these you know temporary utopias that are being made at festivals but sorry that's a later part of this chapter so the the chapter goes, it outlines the the two different routes that people took um after the, in the 60s or yeah, and and thereafter to bring about social transformation because it kind of split up the the counterculture and the new left kind of diverged because some people within the some people within the counterculture were like all right we got to really get active in politics we got we got to stop this war you know we got to have free speech and we got to end Discri racial discrimination so some of them got inv really involved in activism but some of them thought that the whole political process was basically hopeless um, without getting at the cultural component first so they started these early what we now know as music festivals these conscious transformational festivals it started as these events where people would bring together, you know, like really primitive, you know, technologies of using lighting and painting and weird sounds and strobe lights and just weird like collages of recorded speeches. And these are like really cacophonous combinations of, of cultural material, you know, it was like, it was the birth of the mashup and the remix and all, they were kind of just kind of creating these environments where people's minds could kind of 
go wild because there was so much different, so much creativity. And it was just like bursting with creativity and art, you know, and it was like, it, it was a whole new reality. And there was a huge potential in that, you know, and, and sorry, I got way ahead of myself. Um, Cause you know, out of the way that the, uh, that capitalism sold itself as this, like, as the, this great, amazing, perfect system was consumerism. And so a lot of the people in, in the sixties were rejecting consumerism because they saw it as a trap that, you know, it was like this, the, this machine of the industrial economy, capitalism, it just needs us to consume, you know, to consume its products. And so the whole, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out thing was to say, Hey, fuck all this commodity culture that they're feeding you. You know, it's all bullshit, you know, to keep you down and oppress you and keep your mind in a box. And so it was part of the move to create this DIY culture. And that's obviously a very democratic process, a very democratic phenomenon, hyper-democratic phenomenon, really, um, power to the people. And so that was when the Leviathan <laughs> flexed its muscles. You know, that was when, you know, the FBI came out with COINTELPRO and did all this shit to like infiltrate and sabotage all these, you know, movements. They literally were assassinating people, you know, and because they, they were panicked. They saw how powerful this 60s, you know, participatory thing was. Um, and so they had to kneecap it with, you know, character assassinations and literal assassinations and the drug war and they took away the the, the primary tool of un, they, they took away the key that we had to unlocking people's minds you know and that i've i'm so certain that that is a big part of the civilizational psychosis that we're in right now is because they took that away from us right when the earth was like, hey, take this. You need to think more ecologically. And then, you know, the capital was like, yeah, no. <laughs> Go to jail, you know. I'm going to criminalize nature now. <laughs> so they did, they were able to kill a lot of the, you know, utopian ethos of the 60s. But that, but they weren't able to completely eliminate it. They couldn't eradicate that utopian, you know, imagination completely. and. um so it kind of it manifests in cultural forms that I, I I call the three pillars of the counterculture: punk, raving, and hip hop. So I break down in, the, in this chapter like the, the ways that those each emerged as responses to this oppressive capitalist system that we're in, and as a way of existing outside of it. And they, they've they're able they've been co-opted and manipulated and distorted by capitalism and so there are capitalist ver versions of hip-hop there's a capitalist there's capitalist hip-hop and capitalist raving and capitalist punk i don't know that's kind of the <laughs> <laughs> but i guess the emo and metal and a lot of the the, the variations of depoliticized um en high energy angry music <laughs> so yeah there's they you know they've neoliberalism just has fucked up even those things but they i i think that they they still do retain there are still elements within each of those 
that maintain their e- DIY ethos and their like on the ground democratic ethos. Um, and so I think of festivals as these containers where the where the inherent innate creativity of people is allowed to emerge in any which way that it feels called to emerge because it, there's elements of hip hop raving and punk all through throughout within festy culture. And I think that's a really revo- revolutionary thing. I think it's a, a way to, you know, it's a, it's something that's supra intellectual. So people can actually experience it. You know, people can like live this reality w- in community with other people and, you know, just be casually having conversations about whatever comes up, you know, and it, nothing, there isn't a, dun, 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 you know, like, you know, quote pr- production quotas. And I mean, sure. I, I know that there are that in the infrastructure of the festival of festivals. And that's, we can't, uh, can't overlook that and take for granted the hard work that people do to make that container exist and, you know, function in the way that it does to produce these, these uh, cultural innovation and philosophical innovation. And the primary mechanism for that is art you know art is the medium art is the meta medium in which we're transforming the minds of the society overall because society is in dire dire need of um help (laughs) coming to terms with the weirdness of reality you know terence mckenna said as we approach the singularity the psychedelic people will have to become like sitters for the straight people because things will just get weird. Things are going to get weirder and weirder. Uh, and obviously we can all see that that's true. <laughs> if anybody's paying attention to politics nowadays, it's like we're in the fucking twilight zone. All right. <laughs> things are indeed getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> and we also have the maker movement um, taking off where these tech productive technologies, like, you know, 3d printers and, and laser cutters and, all you know, all these tools are being democratized and put in the hands of regular people, and so that the, in some sense, there's a revolution in that itself. Just to, that we can do things for ourselves, and we don't have to like always purchase a commodity. So yeah, in chapter five, all power to the people. And this is a this is my democracy chapter. So this is like uh, so in this chapter, I go through you know the origins of democracy you know, in Greece and then in the modern iteration here um, and how it was not exactly totally democratic, um, (laughs) to say the least. You know, only 6% of citizens could vote, uh, property-owning white males. um, And so 6% of the citizens voting is not quite quite a democracy, (laughs) but it's it's not a monarchy, you know, so it was a big step forward. You know, it it was the origins of the democratic, you know, or the re-implementation of the democratic impulse in modern society, which is super important. And and it's almost paradoxical in the context of the Hobbesian Leviathan framework for there has to be a sovereign, a, uni- a, a universal s- sovereign. So the this idea of a, I mean, the esoteric interpretation of what that sovereign is, is the government but the esoteric interpretation of what that sovereign is, is capital. (laughs) And, you know, 
Capital is not democratic. Uh, if you weren't sure. <laughs> Voting with your dollars is not a democracy when some people have billions of dollars and some people have zero dollars or negative dollars or in a hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt. <laughs> so we get negative votes. Is that what so is that why we're getting fucked so hard? <laughs> so we get negative votes because we have negative dollars in this capital democracy. <laughs> uh, anyways, I guess yeah. <laughs> I was being facetious, but I guess that's accurate. Technically. <laughs> People talk about campaign finance corrupting our democracy. But you know, our democracy was shaped during slavery. So there it it was and it was written by slave owners so it's like it's never had anything like full participation in our voting franchise but anyways and then the and then after the 14th amendment and the slaves became were freed and became citizens then the southern states got even more seats in congress and so that's why if you ever wondered like why the south has so much power in our federal government it's because of this it's because it it was a leftover from the compromise where they didn't want to count the slaves <laughs> as people but still wanted to get the extra still wanted the extra seats in congress uh, so anyways so and it, it, it explains why if to reach to expand our democracy and actually legitimize our democracy and get real democracy we have to you know for example abolish the electoral college and the senate and all these anti-democratic things in the way between the people and the law <laughs> and like um you know if they're gonna like Especially since we're going around the world fucking bombing other countries. I mean, like, hey, you got to have democracy because uh, it's better than what you have. Even when a lot of the times they're fucking, they were democratically elected in more legitimate elections than American elections. But they were like, oh, yeah, no, we got to throw, bring some democracy over there, you know. So, yeah. And so I just talk about how it's unsettling to realize that our democracy has been has been false but you know it's the only step towards solving it the only step towards getting a real democracy is acknowledging the illegitimacy of the one we have now <laughs> but that it was better than what came before it you know so that that's the evolutionary perspective that always has to be kept in mind that you know as fucked up as things are you know it was a lot worse <laughs> beforehand you know like and i guess this is a, just a side note and that's why free speech is so important because that's the only way we got out of this in the first that old shit in the first place was by people being able to speak out against it you know the um accepted norms of their day you know there's the people could speak out against them because of free speech um at least there's that <laughs> you know I, I, I don't think that you know obviously chelsea manning is still in prison right now so it's not the first amendment is not exactly intact but um the principle of it is still lauded as important so politicians give lip service to it even as they prosecute julian assange <laughs> free speech <laughs>
Trump like gave a speech at a college campus, like we're going to intervene and make sure these college campuses respect free speech while he's literally in the middle of prosecuting Julian Assange. <laughs> Clown. But yeah, and, and then I just bring it to that a part of the problem with bourgeois democracy is that the politicians are rich. All, all the politicians are rich and all the citizens are poor. So it's like, well, how good of, how good, how accurate, how high fidelity is this representation <laughs> when the represent, when the representatives are, have a thousand times more money in their bank account than the people that they're supposed to be representing. But the potentials that are there, you know, and there's this whole new wave of politicians that are not taking big money and they're just funding their campaigns and grass, grassroots fundraising and and that's a big step in the right direction like and the, this is a big part of the whole framework is the evolutionary thing though so it's not good enough you know the the fact that we you know that uncorrupted politicians they don't have to spend four hours a day calling rich people on the phone at begging for donations yeah that's a big piece of that's a big uh step forward but it's still we still can't be happy with that. We still can't be happy with them having to raise money at all. You know, there should be, um, we should, we need publicly financed elections. That's the only way that we can ever have a hope for a real, even representative democracy. But even if we, and, and if we did continue to expand the, the franchise to undocumented people and felons and prisoners, so we actually had, actually had full en enfranchisement in the vote. Um, for our representatives, even that would just be fully realizing the democratic potential of the last paradigm's technology, the printing press technology. We, it only, it just only took us 500 years to fully realize the democratic potential of print. And, oh, what do you know? We're past that now. <laughs> you know, there's more potential now. So with the computer, we uh, are presented with the possibility of real-time voting at a distance by everyone everywhere on everything directly and so that's a whole new level of democracy that has literally never been ima imaginable before like i guess it could have been conceived of like rousseau talked about the general will but there was no way of actually measuring what that is like what the what the will of the population what the general will was you know like um so that's why they that's why they had to resort to things like a parliament or a congress or you know a representative democracy but i think that in the future we're going to be able to have so much more direct involvement with all of the important things that you know we can probably mostly agree should be democratically decided while also having in place quanti quantifiable systems and metrics and benchmarks we're on the verge of like a, a, a level of participatory democracy and inclusion in the process of decision-making that has never been available before. So it's a great potential, great uh, democratic possibilities. This, is going, this video is gonna be way longer than I meant for it to be. We're the fucking epic utopian manifest, techno utopian manifesto, so I'm not skimping on the content here. <laughs> Like I said, I've been working on this book for five years. Um, so yeah, and then uh, chapter six is uh, who are we? Who are quote we? Yeah, so that's my immigration chapter. Um, so this is where I lay out my argument for why 
we need to go in the absolute opposite direction that Trump is going in with regard to immigration. Um, because in utopian philosophy, we really do have to talk about what a citizen is. And I can't conceptualize any reason or any framework, any legitimate framework as to why anyone should get citizenship and anyone else shouldn't, you know? It's like people are people. Like, I don't, I don't really see a distinction between citizenship and personhood. You know, so it's like, I feel like, you know, if people exist in a society, then they deserve all the, you know, rights and responsibilities that that comes along with, you know, to have a whole segment of the population that is just locked out of everything. They have to live in the shadows because they, you know, weren't, didn't fill out the right paperwork somewhere or were born on the wrong side of a line drawn on the ground by rich people. You know, this continent was stolen. So to the idea, so the idea of, you know, putting up borders on it, and even if the continent wasn't stolen, the principle of borders is still preposterous. Um, so this is my, so in this chapter, I mean, you have, you have to read it. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to try to convince you <laughs> that borders is illegitimate, dystopian, fascist reality. Um, and this this part here, but. There's a strong argument to be made that these borders are completely contrived to control people in a bad way. Because rich people could just, they just fly wherever they want to fly. You know, they, poor pe- borders are just to control poor people. You know, they've always been trying to control poor people. Going back to feudalism, you know, you had to carry your papers if you wanted to leave your master's plot of land you know so you could prove that you weren't like in search of higher wages or a better job or whatever you know you were you weren't like betraying your master or your lord <laughs> but like the lords they could just fucking ride their horse around wherever they want to go the borders only exist for poor people to tell poor people where they can and can't go like in fucking gaza you know they like they're like they gotta go by checkpoints everywhere they go Borders are dystopian. So, anyways, read that. I think you'll enjoy that chapter, um, whether you like borders or not. (laughs) Especially considering the fact that the way the world is going right now, as parts of the planet become uninhabitable, there's going to be hundreds of millions or billions of people needing to move, desperately needing a new place to live. And so we have to shift the, the whole paradigm of the nation state, which, you know, as I said in the beginning, was born at the last apocalyptic moment four or 500 years ago and is, you know, on its way out now, you know, like the, you know, the UN is so weak. Like they, they it's like they set it up to be just like a nagging finger waving thing with no teeth, you know, it's like, so we don't have a, like the fucking conservatives, the constitutionalists, the jingoistic American patriots. They're like, oh, the UN is coming to take American sovereignty. And it's like, well, the UN can't do shit. <laughs> if that was the plan, then they're, they're doing a horrible job of executing it. <laughs> I wish <laughs> the UN had some power. God damn it. <laughs> we could tell uh, the US to stop doing a lot of what it is doing. <laughs> so we're the number one uh, purveyors of violence in the world. 
anyways. <laughs> but if people try to escape the the region that the U.S. is bombing, then, oh, no, 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 that's not our problem, you know? Like, we can't let refugees in here. They might be part of the enemy. See how that works? <laughs> and then chapter seven, free thought, science as a democratic epistemology. So I am incredibly proud of this chapter. This is my science chapter, the science and religion chapter. Because I think a big part of what, you know, is organizing a lot of human thought and civilization is religion. And the extent to which science is accepted and the findings of it are applied, you know, we can make society, we can materially make society better for people. Um, and in the same way that I believe in democracy, um, despite all the, you know, evidence that people uh, aren't so wise, <laughs> the reason I still believe, I still do believe in democracy, and then we have to, you know, we have to evolve into it. Um, we have to become worthy of it because um, we haven't been, you know, we've had 2,000 years of fascism um and you know so we're just on the verge of potentially getting out of it and i think the science is the only way you know and i think socrates is one of the original you know og scientists and got literally murdered for questioning greek dogma you know the questioning the the reality of the of the greek pantheon you know the the elders were like hey, uh, this guy needs to go, <laughs> you know? So I call him Socrates the Luciferian anarchist. And so I, I talk about the connection between Luciferianism and anarchy, anarchism, um, and how it's, they're each a, a rejection of totalitarian dogma. That, you know, because God is, just, he's the king of kings. And if you've heard that, if people refer to God as the king of kings. Um, well, if you don't like the, um, the concept of a king telling you what to do. What do you? Th how do? You, how do you think about the concept of a king having a king, and that king tells what that king what to do, and then that way that gets the earthly king off the hook for all the shit he made you do. Ah, isn't that convenient? You know, like so we, and that was a proprietary system of ideology where the peasants didn't get to say shit about it you know they're if the peasants had a problem you know then they're get literally burned alive on a pyre at the stake you know <laughs> like, um for being a heretic um so i i think of so this chapter is is largely you know arguing for scientific you know um empirical naturalism as a way of you know searching for the truth and you know organizing as a as a principle for organizing our society around what is true the fucking truth there is a capital t truth i'm not a postmodernist. i i i think the postmodernism is incredible incredibly problematic i think it was a uh, i mean i think it was a i think it was a reaction to dogmatism and that of, of i think it was a reaction to the dogmatism of 
early modernity, the the scientific determinism of and closed-mindedness of early modernity. Um, so I, I I don't blame the people in the '60s for you know, you know becoming postmodernists, but I think that that um, I, know, I guess I just I, I blame it for part of the psycho the general cultural psychosis that can't wrap its head around what's going on in the world <laughs> um because we've been you know it's like when somebody says something you know one person has their reality and another person has their reality and who are we to judge you know either are equally valid and you know we can't so i i see the temptation for that and i know i can imagine it being feeling good to be like yeah yeah no we're yeah whatever you want to think yeah you're right too that's true for you you know <laughs> but i find that to be incredibly problematic and i think that it's part of why the right wing <laughs> for lack of a better characterization is in denial of reality because they're concept of truth has been allowed to become fuzzy like like that's like there is no capital t truth there is though and it's an open source project to figure out what it is no individual has the truth you know all of us are wrong about some shit but it's like science as an inst as a methodology as a as, a, as Carl Sagan said, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe, you know, um, it's a way, it's a collaborative, democratic, open source epistemology. It's a, it's a project that we're all, that we can all engage in to disprove each other. You know, so the scientific method is a collaborative project. You know, when somebody does an experiment and finds a f observation, it's not a scientific fact until a whole bunch of other scientists replicate the study and find the same results. And so that's how we can kind of collaboratively come to the truth. And that's why science is a uniquely effective means of figuring out what's real and what's not. And, you know, the idea of all of the thousands or hundreds of hundreds of thousands of scientists in the world who study various different parts of the earth that are the idea that they're all conspiring to lie that, to say that the earth is experiencing a dramatic climatological escalation is like a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese to cripple American manufacturing. <laughs> it's, I, I have such a hard time <laughs> imagining that people really think that, you know? <laughs> and I like, I, at one point I did, you know, I spent some time in that world that, that, that and so I know that, I know that the, I know that there's no way to, convince them but the anti-science propaganda funded by the fossil fuel industry specifically i would blame a lot of the proliferation of postmodernism as a plague on our society i would blame a lot of it on exxon fucking mobile 
for knowing about climate change and realizing that they got to put billions of dollars into tricking people into thinking that the planet is not on its way to becoming uninhabitable due to industrial uh, pollution. Because there's a reality. We can measure it. Scientists around the planet are each measuring different parts of it, and they're all collectively coming to the same conclusion that we got a fucking problem here and that the world needs to get united around solving this problem. But the oil industry is just produces so much money for a handful of people that you know they're down to blow a portion a small portion of it which is billions of dollars <laughs> on you know tricking the population into not stopping them from continuing to kill the planet so that's why i did this that was a big part of why i did this fucking tour de force against dogma because i think it's getting in it's really getting in the it's it's preventing our ability to deal with the most dangerous existential crisis to have ever faced the human species. The, we've been the dominant species on the planet for tens of thousands of years, but we might annihilate ourselves by not coming to terms with the scientific reality that is being measured by thousands or hundreds of thousands of scientists around the world every fucking day. <laughs> so science has never been more important than it is right now. <laughs> um, but anyways, so, and then, in, and then in that chapter, I kind of go to, okay, so God's dead, what replaces it? And so I, I think that there, we need to actively replace it with, a veneration of nature environmentalism has to become like a religion it has to become functionally a religion that serves the purposes that old timey religion used to serve which is you know creating a sacred that then all human activity is organized around you know so like the idea of uh, so the apocalypse is is real it's really real the apocalypse that you know the mythological apocalypse that is just that 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 religious people believe in muslims and christians and i don't know if jews are particularly apocalyptic but hindus and there's a lot of faiths around the world that are very apocalyptic and they're all uh, you know and, and and indigenous traditions too say that we're in end times right now there because society is transforming and that has to be around the observable patterns in gaia that tell us 200 species are going extinct every single fucking day and that's an apocalypse like that's a hey nothing none of this that we're doing can continue <laughs> or at least we have to seriously reevaluate which parts of it can continue and in what way <laughs> and how must they be modified in order to accommodate the material reality that the ecosystem that we all live in and depend on for our survival is collapsing underneath our feet
Otherwise, we'll, we'll, we will go extinct. And then all of this will be for nothing. You know, ain't no philosophy after we go extinct. <laughs> ain't no pursuit of a better society when the whole thing collapses. Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, there is. But it would be much more difficult than... <laughs> it would be much nicer if we could use our privilege here now that we have in the 21st century before everything completely collapses as many people are you know preparing for before that collapse happens we might as well start trying to think of ways that we might try might be able to avert it <laughs> and transform society without being kicked in the ass by it <laughs> and you know that's because this life is all we get you know the big part of the, my other beef with religion is that it locates you know our best life in after we're dead <laughs> and like <clears throat> you know maybe that served some function in the past and you know i explore that in the chapter but it is not what we need right now you know we're these these technological tools that we have we're at the we're at the point where we can start re-engineering reality and so we don't need and we can optimize reality for it <laughs> you know we don't have to just be like oh yeah life sucks but something dope is gonna come afterwards <laughs> you know like life now has to be good like we gotta make it as good as it can be like otherwise you know what are we doing here you know <laughs> like and so i think that's uh, you know naturalistic piety you know is uh Think I, a thing I think we should aspire to, which is to, you know, make the natural, enhance the, the natural world, even out, you know, beyond ourselves, beyond our species, as well as optimize our own lives that we're living today and here now, you know, and instead of, you know, focusing everything on, you know, a time for after we're dead. Damn, I gotta, sorry. Yeah, I really gotta speed this up. <laughs> so that's only... That was chapter seven, so there's 14 total. So I'm halfway. I'm. I swear, I'm really gonna speed it up this time because I not, didn't, didn't mean to make a fucking five-hour video today. <laughs> so yeah, and then um, the chapter eight: neoliberal theology, superstitious economics, and the dying god king of market theory. This chapter I'm super proud of. Uh, <clears throat> this is my chapter on capitalism. Basically, the the short version. I'm gonna try to do a short version. Is that Basically, neoliberalism, which is the ideological belief in markets as the ultimate best solution for human problems, um, that that is a religion. I call it a, 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 or I mean, capitalism is the religion. And, you know, obviously consumerism is the ritual and um, all of that. So I, I, this chapter is going through the parallels between neoliberalism and theology and, and breaking down and breaking down tenets of, of neoliberal theology. You know, the, the idea that uh, people deserve what they get or people get what they deserve even worse. <laughs> I mean, not worse that it would happen, but worse farther off from reality. <laughs> and, and that that's a theological neoliberal theo theological belief. And so I just go through, you know, all the, all the different parallels it's it's like a it's a long you know it's, it's a long chapter of various um aspects in which this belief in the free market 
has continued to persist despite all its failings, despite all the poverty we all see around us, despite the fact that we people hate, everybody hates their job, but they're like, oh, well, but this is the best system that we can come up with. <laughs> people still believe in capitalism, even though they hate it. They hate it from day to day. Like the suicide rates are increasing currently and drug addictions are increasing you know like shit sucks but people are still are just like yeah no but this but capitalism's great you know and but so this chapter is is like a an explanation on how how and why it has hung on and how it's a it's a fantastical theological belief rather than a democratic epist scientific epistemological um assessment of reality <laughs> that I, I like I outlined in chapter seven about science and free thought and you know because it's like you know with the whole McCarthy shit you know you get run out of academia run out of the entertainment industry or you run out of politics if people suspect you're being a socialist that's why it's that's why that's why it's so amazing that Bernie's running and go, making having the success that he's having while not running away from the term socialist that's why that is such a big deal because it overturns it's a p massive paradigm shift against you know out of away from neoliberal theology that says that anything anybody trying to propose that we share stuff and work together and talk about what we have in common and function as a team and <laughs> like the, the fact that that's not you know you're not labeled a fucking traitor for that you know even though hillary clinton's trying you know she's coming back into the media hillary clinton coming out of nowhere you know to call fucking bernie a uh, agent of putin like we all knew she was gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm frankly surprised it took her so long <laughs> it was just like a month ago if you hadn't been following she totally did <laughs> um <clears throat> But anyways, so yeah, and then so I talk about how, and that lead up to proletarian rapture, you know, the idea of that this, um, you know, the weight of capitalism's inherent contradictions collapsing in on itself is, is a rapturous event in the religion of capitalism. So it's like in the same way that, in the same way that, um, Christianity had its apocalypse 400 years ago, five, four, yeah, 400 years ago. And then there had to be a new system of organization of human activity emerged. Um, some, a same thing is happening to capitalism now, you know, it's, it's breaking down, you know, Christianity didn't, didn't die overnight. You know, there was 130, about 130 years of in between the protestant reformation and the and the treaty of west and the peace of westphalia in 1648 there's a, you know that that 130 year period christianity as a ruling organization and and a hegemonic force in civilization organizing everything as that was starting to break down you know as the printing press made it you know, like 
it made it possible for everybody to start interpreting what was being said in those texts. And then everybody's like, hey, I'm not sure if it said what you guys said it said. And, and then, so it took 100, over 100 years to break down. And people are still Christian today, you know, even though 400 years, solid 500 years later. So it's not like the whole thing ends overnight. But it's, uh, but with but the same, similar thing is happening with capitalism, you, you know, with the, the crash in 2008, you know, it was a big step, you know, into the grave, I suppose, I don't know, of, of the system, because, you know, after 2008, you know, literally, like, all these, you know, formerly middle class or lower middle class people who got these subprime mortgages and got foreclosed on, all of a sudden, they're right back down in the working poor proletariat and they're like okay hold on maybe this whole capitalism thing that talked about how it was going to create this prosperous middle class maybe that isn't actually maybe just maybe that was fake maybe they were <laughs> maybe they were lying about that and just fabricating this middle class for you know as a way to you know placate us from completely changing the system and, and taking away the oligarchic rule exhibited by plutocrats at, in the 0.01% in the top 0.1% of wealth holders. <laughs> so yeah, so I break down why it's breaking down. <laughs> why neoliberal theology is breaking down. And then in chapter nine, the sequel to the apocalypse, this is basically my UBI argument or my argument for, you know, the first step out of this labor for income cyclical consumption paradigm. I mean, I guess it's not really quite a step out of the cyclical consumption part, um, but that would be the following chapter, actually, the, the chapter 10. So let me back to chapter nine, the sequel to the apocalypse. Yeah, that's it's basically about um, the, the first step out of the labor for income trap. So we're, we have universal basic income. Cause so I would talk about, the philosophical grounds for UBI, you know, the rep, I frame it as rep, reparations to the dispossessed, Go, going back to Thomas Paine's agrarian justice argument, um, where he said that the enclosure movement, i.e. the creation of private property, it robbed every person whom it didn't give property to of their claim to whatever portion of the earth they would have otherwise enjoyed in a shared way in the commons before the privatization of the land and the enclosure. And so it's not even just about automation because obviously automation is a big part. This is also an automation chapter because I, so I talk a little bit about like how literally every sector of the economy is going to be completely automated uh, in the next 50 years or whatever like piece by piece we're just going to completely automate the entire economy and so the concept of jobs is completely obsolete it's a it's um it's a relic of the industrial age that we're trans that we're in the middle of transcending you know like like i said it, it doesn't all happen at once but but that's we're in this phase right now. we're in a, a moment of moment loosely you know a, a period of transition from when you know, we didn't have robots, and so we had to use wages, wage labor, and with it, poverty, because people are only going to do wage labor if they're poor. So that's why they have to keep 
people poor for the past, you know, 100, 200 years. Well, yeah, a few hundred years, whatever. Since this whole modern era, um, creation of private property. Since we didn't have robots to do all the work yet, we and slavery had been abolished, wage labor filled the gap in between slavery and robots. So that's what this whole industrial employment paradigm was over the past 200 years was because in order to get humanity's material needs met we had to incentivize people to work in factories and the the only way they would do that is if they literally got kicked off of the land so that's part of what the enclosure movement like it you know it kicked a lot of the you know the the people who all a lot of the peasants the serfs who were on the land I'm going to talk about how, so how do we, how do we speed up the adoption of fully automated systems in a post-work society? And because, you know, a lot of the, the neoliberals who talk about how, oh, we need jobs and, oh my gosh, we got to create jobs. That whole way of thinking is the old paradigm, the industrial paradigm that I think we're on the verge of transcending um, via automation. And, and, but we're still stuck in, I think a big, a big part of, you know, like why I had to lay out this whole neoliberal theology thing. It's because we're still, we're still stuck in believing that people only deserve to get what they slave away for, because that was the normative ethic that had to be in place in order for society to prosper. The whole Protestant work ethic and all that shit like, Oh yeah, you got to work hard. And you know, otherwise God won't reward you with material prosperity. Like that whole shit, that was, it was useful at a time when we were in, you know, massive scarcity. The main problem of economics is scarcity. And so we were in massive scarcity, you know, before we had robots to do the, uh, you know, the agricultural work and the, and the the work of feeding us and producing this and producing our stuff. And, you know, a lot of people were talking about fully automating the economy in the sixties because these prospects were there some of my heroes like jeremy rifkin like wrote a book called the end of work in like the early 70s where he was like hey if hey if everything keeps continuing to go as it's going then we're not gonna have to work anymore but what they did was rather than automate fully automate the economy which would have freed up the people to then be even more involved in politics than they were in the 60s which was overwhelming to the system even then rather than doing that what they did is they really ramped up consumerism and exported the jobs to the third world where they could set up, you know, the same factories, basically outsource the jobs to the third world and where there weren't, where the, where they didn't have the same sorts of, you know, liberal democratic mechanisms with which American workers had gotten labor rights a hundred years ago you know, and the right to unionize and, and have a minimum fucking wage (laughs) even and any, any workplace safety or anything like that. So they're just fucking, it it was cheaper to move the jobs to a factory in China or whatever at that time, which was, which was the third world country at that time. It was cheaper to, you know, get sweatshop labor overseas than to build the automated systems here at home that were being prophesied in the 60s that you know 
could have saved us a whole fucking lot of trouble <laughs> if we had done that instead of going the new neoliberal way of doing these free trade agreements and just setting it all up so that the jobs still go away so so people are freed up from the jobs but rather than you know creating a universal guaranteed salary basic income they invented credit cards and all of a sudden consumer debt um, was a new thing. Oh yeah, regular people access to debt, or I'm mean, sorry, ac access to credit. No, that's what they call it, credit. <laughs> and so it like it facilitated all this, you know, prosperity and middle cl middle class prosperity. Meanwhile, the fucking wages are going down, you know, going down relative to inflation, and productivity was going through the roof. So, anyways, yeah, this chapter is just a argument for basic income on the grounds that already would have been a just demand a a justified utopian demand even without automation but given the fact that we're are that we are in the middle of automation but haven't overcome currency yet we're still we're, we're not in a post-monetary paradigm quite yet i i think we'll get there but that i've we're not gonna that's gonna be a few decades you know i can see that being 50 or 100 years before we involved beyond currency but for now in the meantime while we do still have currency and the jobs are being automated then ubi is the only way to fill in the gap i think you know and there are people who say that it's going to get in the way of revolution but i i kind of don't think so because i think that it will solve the poverty of philosophy problem which marx laid out as the fact that working people don't have time to do philosophy so they don't even they don't even have time to fully contextualize and appreciate their own oppression and exploitation in the context of the historical struggle i think it will give people time you know i mean and people might piss it away on video games or whatever but i think it's a i think it will be a big step forward if we can free up some people's time so that they can start thinking even you know like most people just don't even have time to think so yeah so chapter nine is about how to get out of labor labor for income and then chapter 10 is as an attempt to see how we get out of um cyclical consumption and chapter 10 free the culture ideas are public goods so this is my argument against intellectual property so basically this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road in terms of the technological component of my utopianism because i think that the part of the reason that computers are so revolutionary is not even just the fact that they connect people to each other in ways they we had we had never been connected but they are tools of infinite reproducibility so when a computer transfers information to another computer across the network it makes a copy of it and so the transfer is not the same as the transfer of goods in physical space so the market was a mechanism of distribution of goods in physical space because the transactional nature of commodities trading you know it in the aggregate creates a market and there there's a natural form of that and i really think it's part of why von mises the you know one of the patron saints of neoliberal theology part of his his main argument 
was the the calculation problem you know so he's he said there's so many factors that need to be taken into account in terms of you know who wants what and what resources are available where and how that no government could calculate it so it's, it's a famous calculation problem it's the main argument for markets and it's a you know i don't think it was the main reason that um, the 20th century communism collapsed but i'm sure it's a big factor you know but uh now the reason that we're in a different time now in the 21st century is because everything can be copied um and so this leads towards the, the future scenario where we all have 3d printers at home and we can print whatever goods that you know under current under our current circumstances we buy at the store but we'll be able to just print things and so if we have this intellectual property regime in place then everybody will have to pay for everything think about the way that capitalism has taken over the internet so that there's ads everywhere and paywalls and it's because well, I mean, it's partially because we don't have a basic income, so everybody needs a fucking income. So everybody, everybody who's doing anything on the internet has to figure out some kind of way to monetize it so they can get a paycheck so they can pay their rent, you know? And so, and the intellectual property regime has kind of functioned as the only way to get income for, for the creation of digital of culture. Um, and, but I think that that is, I think that that intellectual property and getting income from your art that way, um, I think it is transposing a logic of scarcity in markets in 20th century, a, a paradigm, a previous paradigm, onto this new scenario where we have the ability to, you know, share information completely freely and the the original isn't diminished in the copying of anything so it's that i think is is at the core of the utopian possibilities that we're confronted with now with our technological situation infinite reproducibility but the intellectual property regime of the really of the 18th century it's an obsolete framework and has become a hindrance to pro the progress that it purported to be in place in the first place to promote so yeah and this chapter is about how you know sorry i'll try to do a fast version <laughs> i forgot that was the i was trying to do a fast version but um so i go through in this intellectual property chapter like all the like different various aspects of intellectual property so the idea of digital objects like the idea of you know music and i guess i do i do spend a lot of time on music because i think that, that i i for a long time have considered the music industry the canary in the coal mine because this is the whole remember you know 20 years ago with napster and all that like the internet was wrecking the entertainment industry or whatever and you go through um eben moglin he's a great free culture theorist and civil libertarian and you know he, he said the great moral question of the 21st century is if all knowledge all culture all art all useful information can be costlessly given to everyone at the same price that it is given to anyone if everyone can have everything everywhere all the time why is it ever moral to exclude anyone from anything and so this a lot of this chapter is exploring that principle of you know that the disintermediation between the creator and the 
perceiver of any given cultural artifact, they're being disintermediated. You know, it's it's being they're being cut out of the loop. So they're a um, a leviathan that you know is obsolete. Information wants to be free, <laughs> and so. Then I, after I've like, after breaking down, you know, how, you know, most, most of my friends are fucking broke, you know, starving artists, you know, so it's like, it's, uh, so I, you know, I, I talk about, I'm not, I'm not like coming at this, like, hey, you know, you should, hey, poor artists, you should give away your shit for free. Um, I mean, I, that is the, part of the argument, but it's a higher principle to it than just the individual, I guess, is what we're, I'm trying to think about the, the, the social organism of human knowledge you know, as a cohesive thing, you know, that we're each participating in and that to the extent to which we put paywalls around things and make information proprietary is the extent to which we're creating brain damage in the broader brain, global brain that is civilization, you know? So intellectual property is like a problem. <laughs> and then I go through and ex explore and use the the framework of the four freedoms from the 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 free software foundation and 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 i use the principles laid out in chapter two or chapter three about how we think with myths and culture is an operating system and so i talk about how i use the free software movements for freedoms to analyze how the you know the first two freedoms you know i don't know how much of it i'm, I'm just trying to go faster this so i don't know how, into, how far into it i want to get but like that secularism was the freedom zero and then humanism was freedom one and then you know the we haven't achieved the other two freedoms because we can't modify and redistribute copies of our culture our cultural operating system you know their proprietary owned property private property of corporations mostly so it's an, it's not free, and so our and the extent to which those that culture is in our minds running our whole cognitive process, we're, that means our mind is running unfree software, you know, uh, proprietary software that we can't access, and so it's it's a level of unfreedom that we have in our own minds as a result of it being in the intellectual property regime of our society, which is then foisted upon the world through the WTO and stuff like that and, you know so like for example how they bullied sweden into shutting down pirate bay even though they weren't violating any swedish law but the the u.s you know like basically it was the entertainment industry used you know how corrupt the u.s government is basically obviously to you know force their will the, their corporate capitalist will on sweden you know, to bully the government of sweden who was supposed to have sovereignty, you know, um, into cracking down on a website that was, wasn't breaking their laws <laughs> or their principles, you know, like they they didn't believe in criminalizing file sharing, you know, it just wasn't in their, in their conception of right and wrong or proper, what is, or isn't property. Like you're not taking anything away from anybody, then what's the problem? You know, so that, I'm, so I assume that the Swedish, you know, legislators that were getting bullied you know by the U u.s entertainment industry were like hey what the fuck dude like <laughs> this is not your country man like but they did it and and um and so and 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 it and it isn't even just cultural products because 
that I, I use that as a framework because those are the, those are the main copyright fights that most people are aware of. But I also go into how in physical goods, like medicine, for example, there are copyrights on pharmaceuticals that prevent people from getting the life-saving medicine that they need and they die. <laughs> so like, like, for example, like in India, they had like a thriving generic drug manufacturing industry because it's a, it was generally a pretty poor country. And so they, you know, just were making copies of the pharmaceuticals that American capitalists were producing at, at a teeny tiny, teeny little fraction of the price because, you know, 90 something percent of the price of pharmaceuticals is just the patent markup. You know, it's, they, they cost cents to produce, you know, it's like there's a teeny tiny little bit. It's just like a, this much of a chemical, you know, it's like, doesn't, it's like, you know, it costs pennies to produce, but then they charge a hundred dollars because of the way that our healthcare system is set up, but especially the high cost of pharmaceutical drugs, like they, they, uh, and the way that they have patents on them. So I, and I talk about a, an alternative system for um, incentivizing pharmaceutical innovation uh, from Thomas Pog. He has a great, um, you know, framework on it, alternative framework to the patent system that I lay out for, for pharmaceuticals, but then, you know, and I also go into, you know, go into a little bit of the, 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 the like globalization angle and um, and the WTO and how the WTO has like forced all these poor countries to stop manufacturing generic drugs, or the or the fucking WTO will levy levy sanctions against them. The, the United States Section Five Hundred Three um, gives the U.S. power to like to use any sort of economic warf warfare against a country that it sees fit in order to get the removal of any pieces of legislation that it doesn't like. <laughs> so there's like the, the whole idea of national sovereignty is ridiculous. Like the U.S. is running the world. <laughs> um, and then I get into how it's not just, you know, ph ph chemicals that, you know, that were, um that people that corporations are patenting but it's dna like organisms because bio the biotech industry is huge and only continuing to explode and it's at the only at a nas nascent stage is really relative to what it's going to do um you know it's like so, but so I, I talk about the you know commodifying life itself you know the, the patenting of dna human dna and how and i i I'll outline the framework of how how the um, ACLU overturned this one um, patent on unmodified human DNA. Um, and but anyways, it's so it's like, but I draw the oh and then oh sorry I guess there is one more part to that chapter about data and um, and uh, proprietary data and uh, about how big part of, uh, an essential part of getting towards the future is a part is a future where you know data is all seen as so, because you know like where privacy is is a completely a fantastical notion if, if if it 
if it still exists, it's purely a fantasy. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like most people don't even have the fantasy anymore. Most people are aware that there are literally multiple corporations listening to and watching and monitoring every little thing they do and say in their entire lives. <laughs> most people are aware of that now. So the idea of, you know, privacy and it's like, and so I kind of, so I connect in the idea that these corporations are, you know, that data is the new gold and they're, they're treating in the information about our intimate, intimate details of our lives. They're using that as, you know, proprietary data that they're, you know, reaping mad dollars off of. That's part of how the average, it's like the grist, the fuel for the advertising industry, the data about the, what makes us tick, you know? Um, so yeah, anyway, so I, I talk about how that there's a, there, there's a more socially useful way of managing the collective data of our lives and whatever, uh, you know, as, as a communal project, as, rather than just like, I think the, I think the fantasy of privacy is, is only fueling the hegemony of these oligopolist corporations who are running all this activity <laughs> this digital activity you know like the fact that we don't see that we're all in this together and all of our data would be more useful if it were pooled together and used collectively um like that's an extent to which they are able to keep us in our own little individual box you know as a and making us feel lonely so we gotta buy shit so blah blah you know <laughs> but anyways um and so that chapter, I, I, spent, I probably spent more time on it than I w had originally anticipated because I was just starting that chapter at the beginning of this year, 2019, when I started this podcast. So I kind of like was half working on this chapter and half working on the podcast for those six months that I was doing those first six episodes. And so that's part of why I was like, oh, okay, I got to put this podcast on hold a little bit because I'm, I can't. I'm never going to finish this book if it takes me six months per chapter. But uh, anyways, so now I'm in the middle of my, uh, chapter, my of writing my 11th chapter, which is on education, which is, you know, it's no small thing. <laughs> the Siberian ascent, education for a post-industrial world. So here I go through how, you know, the education system that we've been handed the legacy education system obviously there's a gazillion problems with it but and i've outlined that you know i'm outlining them and and going into solutions you know i'm i'm minored in education policy in uh in college and this is it seems so incredibly important as to what shapes human society because everything you know, especially in a democracy where, you know, people are given the at least nominal impression that they're supposed to be participating in this civic society and, you know, that it, the, the society is a product of all of us doing everything we do. And the, the, the changes in society that have happened over the past 200 years, this, this like remarkable transformation from a rural you know, agrarian society where we're all just working in the fields and to, you know, a society where we're working in factories to a society where we're, you know, working at Starbucks 
Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Um, the service economy. But that's not even that's not even the main trend anymore. Now we're in the gig economy where it's even more demoralized and, you know, casualized and deprofessionalized than even the service economy. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's, it's like the, the fact that society has been, has gone through all these massive changes over the past hundred years. It's because we have an education system and the extent to which we haven't been able to make this next step into this next, you know, phase of society is because our education system hasn't kept up. And part of the reason for that is because of the bifurcation that happened in response to Brown versus Board of Education, where they had to integrate the public schools. And then the rich people took their kids out of public schools and created private schools. And then, so there was a ton of private schools that popped up all of a sudden in the sixties in America um, because of rich people didn't want to send their kids to school with black people. So then we cr it created a, it created a different version of the separate, but equal, <laughs> uh, nobody thinks it's equal, but the, the, this like two tiered education system between private school and public school where they, everybody who has any power, in society and all the rich people send their kids to private school. So no, they, none of them care what the state of the public schools is like. Um, so then we just end up with the, these schools that, you know, what's this fucking 40% dropout rate because nobody sees the connection because school is set up in a way where everybody's just got to take these standardized tests, you know, and there's a lot of, students and especially in poor areas are like what the fuck is the point of this <laughs> so they just dip set on education altogether and i think that's a big part big problem a big part of our um cognitive limitations as a society is because education hasn't been vaunted in the way that it should be and you know also t talking about you know like why we have to ban private schools why we we have to invest more in libraries and, to, and how we have to encourage the autodidactical use of the internet to, because it does, it does enable the direct with the material. Like I'm, you know, I've, I've spent as much time studying over the past five years as I would have if I had, I'd been in grad school. <laughs> so it's like the internet enables this direct with the material um, relationship in a way that you know wasn't quite possible before um so kind of so exploring that like so it's the technological component of how how digital transforms what education can do and also how the economic situation of the country you know demands that we you know set it up in a different way for example nationalizing the funding structure of public education <laughs> so the poor districts or poor neighborhoods don't get poor schools this should be common knowledge but i forget that it ain't so <laughs> that's the chapter i'm working on now so chapter 12 will be no more war obsoleting the grand chessboard and the petrodollar so i'm going to go through how the idea of 
wars over ideology is all a charade and all wars are about natural resources and disaster capitalism in all over the world and especially in central america um truman doctrine you know about how the u.s military is going to be uh, the, the world's anti-communist police force. And that's part of why we've done countless coup, right-wing coups against dem- democratically elected socialist governments. It's all for the resources, you know, and, and obviously to prevent worker solidarity in those countries. And then with, and then, you know, they, they want to prevent successful, actually existing socialism from coming to pass so that they can continue to be like, oh, see, oh, Socialism always fails. You know, every, people try to share stuff and then it always ends up failing, you know, and the government discredits itself by getting greedy and then they, they just have to, you know, do, do a regime change. It's the only, re, right, you know, humanitarian thing to do, or whatever they fucking say. So, yeah, I'll talk about the, like, Patriot Act and the, this uh, strange situation now that we're in now where the basic civil civil liberties that are at the heart of what America uses as its grounds for supposing its own moral superiority to other countries that it's trying to overthrow is like we we actually got rid of those civil civil liberties with the Patriot Act <laughs> uh, and so for the purposes of continuing these flagrantly objectionable wars we, we like just you know, shredded the constitution and the civil liberties that, you get my point. And then talk about, you know, solar grid parity and how, you know, the the exponential evolution of renewable technologies, renewable energy technologies are obsoleting the need for this neo-colonial enterprise to extract oil from these countries. And even, and it's not just oil that we extract from the country. So it's, there's also lots of other like mineral resources and stuff like that, that are, you know, needed for the technology. So oil is just one natural commodity in a category of things that the American imperial project is to extract from these countries. Big part of my utopian, technological utopian concept of actual war, world peace and actual end of war given the fact that wars are over natural resources is is atomic is going to be atomically precise manufacturing when our 3d printing technology gets so good that we can literally like manufacture molecules layer you know atom by atom then we won't need to do these violent extraction schemes in the third world, you know, we we'll want to keep the third world in the third world. <laughs> we don't have to keep them that poor for the purposes of the extraction of their resources because we'll be able to manufacture them at a molecular level um, in a science lab or whatever, you know. And so the, it, it will obviate that whole robbery that's taking place every day. So, anyways, that, that's going to be my my war chat, my post-war chapter <laughs> aspirationally post-war because yeah it's uh it's been about a hundred years since the quote war to end all wars ended and it seems like we've been at war ever since <laughs> funny how that works
So then chapter 13 will be upgrading public health, optimizing our social ecology. So this is going to be a big chapter too, because there's so many things I want to fit into here because it's, it's going to be about how we design uh, th this healthy society. <laughs> it's, it's basically, it's, this is going to be the part where, you know, because public health, that's the point of civil infrastructure. There's a whole point of like trying to imagine the law and institutions that we have is it should be to optimize public health you know and you could construe that in some other we could define that somehow else that isn't actually what it really is and justify something other bullshit by calling it that or i don't know <laughs> so yeah and this will be the part where i talk about what it would mean to reestablish a healthy relationship with the earth you know, and a lot of that come, goes back to indigenous ways of being and ways of seeing the natural world and ourselves as just a part of, just a part of it, you know, not, you know, an ontologically special part that God gave everything to for our own, you know, nefarious purposes or whatever we want to do with it or whatever, <laughs> to spoil it. You know, to, uh, it's a, this is a, you know, given that we are in the middle of a, of a, ecological catastrophe that the entire earth's living system gaia is sick you know and 200 species we're losing 200 species a day and uh you know and some of those are like real important species <laughs> like obviously they're all important but <laughs> you know what i mean like certain things like the motherfucking honeybees that pollinate the flowers that every other animal eats <laughs> but yeah stuff like that so so i'm going to talk about how, how we have to transform our food system to accommodate that to be regenerative and you know actually mutually beneficial for both humanity and the planet and you know the the urban renaissance like how we have to rewild most of the earth um and that part of that is there's going to be a reciprocal effect with the the revivification of urban centers that people are going to need to or people are in the you know already you know moving towards like there's some massive trends towards urbanization both in america and around the world and that that's really important to free up space for other species that are not human to um enjoy the earth as they as they rightfully uh, should be able to <laughs> so then we'll go through how to how to fight gentrification given that we're going to be revitalizing all these cities how do we do that in a way that doesn't further oppress poor people <laughs> as is basically the default as you know and we'll talk about housing as a human right this is there will be a section on housing there because the public you can't have health without housing <laughs> like there's this thing public health if people are getting kicked out of their fucking apartments because they can't afford the rent and you know people living on the streets and then you're like oh why is there trash everywhere because it's like oh wait because there's people right there that didn't have a trash can because they don't have a fucking house <laughs> so anyways like that's an, an essential part to getting a healthy society is to end homelessness and so then we'll talk about smart cities and how the intelligent infrastructure that is is in the beginnings of right now of being implemented in cities around the world and about how part of that is being and that'll draw back to the intellectual property chapter because the intelligent infrastructure if 
we go into it with this strong intellectual property regime and framework that we're currently that we currently have then there will just be a monopoly a corporation a pgne for example you know who's gonna uh divest from maintenance and pay out to shareholders for the past 30 years and then all of a sudden uh when we have a, a drought and everything dries up all of a sudden the power lines are uh, these antiquated power lines that are up in the air falling down in the heavy winds and burning down the state <laughs> so so it's like that's an example just that that's just as an example of why the smart intelligent infrastructure of the smart cities cannot be owned by you know a, a, a corporate a, a corporation with a profit motive because then they're just gonna they're not gonna put the necessary you know foresight into the public health component of the fact that we all live here you know it's not just yeah our existence is not just for the purposes of maximizing somebody's profit somewhere like as much as neoliberal theology wants to tell us <laughs> then we'll talk about big data a little bit and how as i said the de proprietorization of all of our data this thing that they call big data you know how there's trillions of sensors all around the world and we're able to measure things that we could never measure before and just factor all that into this you know broader project of optimizing human life <laughs> so yeah i'm talking about big data and then and quantified self you know how that's going to help enhance our ability to monitor what our own bodies and our society and we'll be able to collaboratively check those data against each other to see you know best practices of healthful living you know given our own personal physiological you know genetic and whatever constitution <laughs> yeah and then talk obviously i have to talk about socializing healthcare here um and the right to life as it says in in one uh in one kind of important document that declares that we have an un, an inalienable right to life um and then but somehow our capitalist system has treats it as a commodity and a lot, it just leaves thousands of people out to die because they can't afford the medicine that they need even though we're living in the richest society in the history of the planet <laughs> but so yeah and then uh yeah and talk about mental health crisis and solutions and you know socializing obviously mental health care you know as you know elizabeth warren's fake medicare for all uh, omits mental health care um <laughs> as if it's like not an essential part of healthcare um to have a healthy mind um even in the midst of a massive public health crisis in psychology like people are going crazy right now <laughs> trying to deal with everything that's happening in society um but anyway so yeah we'll talk about that um uh, the mental health crisis and solutions um and then abolishing prisons uh, uh, and we'll talk about how a sufficient mental health care regime will has to replace prisons we have to replace this system of retributive punishment with a system of actually trying to fix people you know and you know there's another thing psychedelics will be part of 
because, you know, I think that's part of why we have this mental health crisis over the past, you know, 50 years or whatever, is because we haven't had that tool of mental health care um, at, in the toolkit of, of, of psychology, like psychiatrists can, they can, they can prescribe things to make people stop thinking, but they can't prescribe things to make people think more. Does that make sense? And I think that's problematic because a lot of times our, the problems that we're having in our lives that lead to mental illness require more thinking, not less. So yeah, and then this, and then legalizing drugs because that's a super important thing for public health too. Because we, I think a lot of the, you know, people are dying of overdoses because they don't know what the fuck they're taking because they're <laughs> when they want to perturb their nervous system, they got to go to the black market. It's completely unregulated by anything. <laughs> Fucking cutting shit with fentanyl and killing people, dude. But anyways, so we have a regulated system where these things were available to people and they didn't have to resort to the get to buying shit on the street and with no labels have nothing no from no information about what it is they're putting in their bodies and people fucking die let alone you know experience paranoid psychosis and all that shit because they're worried about getting in trouble with the law and let alone the unhealthful nature of being in motherfucking prison for a nonviolent offense that didn't hurt anybody. <laughs> uh, it's very uh, unhealthy. <laughs> so, and then I'll finish that public health chapter on, you know, the idea that we're in the golden age of neuroscience. The idea that we're just at the beginning of a whole new paradigm where we're able to actually like take pictures of the brain at every, you know, like at different you know, able to t do radiographic imaging of of different of every little part of the brain. We can map the connectome and this whole this whole situation where we're we've only just broken the the cipher of the mind. You know, like we're just at the beginning stages of it. You know, like uh, people talk about how psychology, the the discipline of psychology, will. I think it was Michio Kaku, a physicist, a futurist, um, who said that. The insights of neuroscience will make psychology, or it, it, it will do to psychology what the invention of chemistry did to alchemy. So it's like it makes it, turns it from a, a pseudoscience into a science. Still, a lot of people attack psychology for being pseudoscientific. Because, uh, because, and I, I don't think it is, but it's, it's squishier than other sciences because it's really hard to measure. <laughs> you know, like it's really hard to experimentally, empirically measure like what are the causal factors in any given human behavior just because we're so complex so we're just at the beginning phases of figuring how, out how people work oh yeah and then sorry there was sorry that wasn't the that isn't the last part of the public health chapter the last part is you know flipping the paradigm i guess maybe this will be a framework for the whole chapter but it's flipping the paradigm of medicine from therapy to enhancement it's a, that's uh, the framework that a lot of futurists use where you know it's like medicine up until now has all been about how do we solve people's problems how we take people from negative to zero and you know it's like psychiatrists literally it's they can't prescribe any medications to take people from zero to positive yeah it's because we're in this frame this paradigm where they can only bring people dig people out you know or you know dig people out of a hole but they can't like help people. 
And so I think we're going to be into a new phase of public health where medicine shifts from just solving problems to enhancing um, people's lives, people's experience of their lives. And that's another thing psychedelics will be huge for, you know, um, enhancing people's lives. Like in the experiments, like people, you know, and like the Johns Hopkins for experiments, for example, that, you know, before that were done before they criminalized it. So it's like some of the only data we have to go on, but they gave mushrooms to people of, of all, all different religions and, you know, walks of life ideologies and like some vast majority of them said that it was the most important experience of their life <laughs> so like a lot of people compared it to the birth of their first kid you know it's like these these are like experiences that that magnify the great you know the greatness of people's lives in a way that you know they can't, can't be done otherwise this motherfucking illegal because the fascists run the <laughs> um because uh because nixon wanted to break up the 60s <laughs> he wanted to uh, no more free love you know free love is dangerous to this situation we got called capitalism and the white man running shit <laughs> anyways so then finally my cha so chapter 14 uh, post-humanism and ideology for the future so this is going to be you know i'm going to explore how you know humanism as important as it is and as you know i'm a i am a humanist as well as a transhumanist and post-humanist you know but those are those each have different meanings and different purposes purposes so i think that humanism is important in the context of focusing our attention on our own actual lives in human society rather than a uh, mythological daddy archetype that created us and therefore we owe everything to him or whatever so like human humanism is really important for that you know and so it's where it's like focuses our energies on us the humans you know um so i am so that is important but the reason i call it an ideology for the future is because we're on the verge of a transhuman era where people are starting to upgrade their biology and people are start uh, starting to install you know technological devices into their meat vessel so they're becoming transhuman and that 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 needs to be okay um it needs to be seen as a natural evolution of humanity um so this whole thing about trans rights and like it's the reason that the conservatives and the reactionaries and the christians are so afraid of the trans movement and queer people in general but especially but especially trans people is because they have this concept that to violate the binary of sex differences that they think god created 
So they think that we would be violating God's wishes by transcending the gender binary. And so they're, they, they call revelations and all this shit. They, they fucking, they'll cite the Bible all day long about the abominations of whatever. And, but it's because they're, it's because they, it's because Christianity fundamentally recruits people to its um, organization um, because we all have a, a natural fear of death. So um, any religion that, that, um, that, ha- that has an afterlife as a core tenet of its dogma will oppose anything that threatens that recruiting mechanism. So if we're on the verge of, so, okay, so let me, sex was invented billions of years ago, (laughs) not by God, but unless I guess you want to call just reality God, whatever. Um, but it might not be, you know, we might be transcending it. It sex was an innovation. Like the, 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 the distinction between male and female was an innovation a couple billion years ago, you know, and it's, it's a lot of, it, it did create a lot of the, you know, biodiversity that has since exploded into the world and all the, you know, the, the diverse beauties around the world that, 200 of that by the way 200 of which are dying every day from this industrial mass extinction event um but the like if we are able to fundament if we are able to solve the death problem which is what transhuman scientists are doing they're researching immortality to they're trying to figure out how we can stop senescence the 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 eventual decay of our bodies you know um like scientists are trying to solve that and that will take away everything from christianity and islam and all these death denying religions that you know that believe in an afterlife they're all against the transcension of biology because if we if we blur the lines between male and female as part of this general project of transcending biology, then we might not need it anymore. We even they won't, we they it, it takes away their recruiting mechanism. Their you know, but we're on this. We're we're in the midst of transcending the our biology, and part of that is transcending the gender what they call the gender binary, which is the the cultural constructs around sex differences for able if we blur those lines which is a step towards post-humanism because the cyborgs or even the the fully non-biological beings that we are people that we are becoming or that we will become you know there's there's no room for the bible in that does that make sense so I, I think that's a big part of this next stage that we're moving towards. And it's a big part of my utopianism is because we 
we are in on the verge of literally emulating the brain. Like once we figure out quantum computing, we'll be able to emulate the brain and upload our consciousness into cyberspace so that we, we will have disem we will be disembodied minds that we can then download into robot bodies as we see fit and then transfer our consciousness to different robot bodies. And like, and obviously these robots are going to be vastly more sophisticated and lifelike than the, you know, the Boston dynamics Android that's jumping over, you know, barrels or whatever on the last uh, promo video to scare the shit out of you. <laughs> like we'll be able to just like the idea of, um, teleporting done. We can just, once, once we're, once our minds become removed from the substrate of our physical meat body, you know, then we'll just be able to like literally fly, for example, around the world and fly above like, you know, the nature that we're going to be rewilding the transgressiveness of the whole trans movement that is kind of like confusing everybody or whatever. And I believe it's, it's serving a utopian function in that it's loosening up our assumptions of what it means to be a person, you know, like it, what it, not necessarily what it means to be human. Yeah. It's, it's loosening up what it means to be human, I guess also, but that I think is a, is to lay the groundwork for this next thing, which is to evolve beyond these bodies. So where we'll be able to have what they call morphological liberty, where we could change bodies as we see fit, you know, like, like right now you gotta like fucking pay a couple hundred, like pay a couple hundred dollars and sit through hours of pain just to get a tattoo, you know, like, but it doesn't have to, you know, in the, in the, post-human future we can you know we can inhabit any body we want at any time and experiment experimentally we can inhabit any kind of shaped body that we want you know if that makes sense and also not fucking die <laughs> part of why we had religion before was to pretend that we don't die because nobody wants to die nobody wants to i mean unless they're sick you know, nobody wants to die, <laughs> like, but people have just accepted that it's going to happen because it just always has happened, you know, for as long as mammalian life or long, long, long before, even before that, you know, so literally all of reality that we know of, death is a part of it. So if people can't accept people, so people have just resigned themselves to accepting it and created multitudinous fantasies about what happens after we do die as a as a as a means of coping with the prospect of us actually dying so we just like kind of we just kind of we just come up with all these myths of the afterlife so as to tell ourselves that we're not gonna die you know when people die we're like oh yeah we'll meet them there somewhere wherever they went after we die it's comforting whatever but like i i don't think we but, but I, I mean, I know we don't need that, but we're especially not going to need it once we're not, once we actually don't die anymore, like, and we actually do just to get to continue. Because think about how wise, you know, some, some older people are obviously not 
you know, obviously capitalism has built in all these mechanisms that make people traditionalist. And if we're worried about a uh, an atrophied imagination, then uh, the elders often aren't the ones to look to for hope on that. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. But I guess, but with, um, but that's also because they ain't been tripping. <laughs> you know, like the elders who have done a, a decent amount of psychedelics, they're the ones who are the wise ones. You know, they're the ones who, you know, their wisdom does grow as they go grow older, you know. Um, and so then that's the kind of paradigm that we want. That's the kind of paradigm we could we can exist in. And just imagine how how wise we could get if we're living for hundreds of years, if we're able to study and, and not even, not only that, not only just existing, but free from toil, not have to fucking sell all of our time to a capitalist to pay the rent anymore also. So we get to spend that time in eternity, studying whatever we want to study, creating whatever art we want to study, you know, just like connecting with people and on a deep level as, as much as we can, you know, like for, in, in perpetuity, you know, and it, it, it's a, it's a type of flourishing that it's an open-ended and there's no expiration date necessarily as there is in human life. So that's part of why post-humanism is so, you know, it's such a, a magical prospect to me, you know, or a, such a, an alluring prospect to me because it, it's like a, I learned, I know, I, I can just speak for myself. I know, I learn new stuff every day. Like, and I, if I went on like this, I, I can't even imagine how wise I could get in hundreds of years, <laughs> you know, like, and just, you know, I feel like I, I'm just able to do life better, you know, the longer I do it. You know, I'm sure that's true for everybody. Like you figure shit out, you know, and then by the time you figure it all out, then, then the Grim Reaper is knocking on your fucking door. <laughs> And so, you know, immortality, you know, it's been criticized as a, basically a relic of the, of, of a Christian idea, fantasy, but it's, I think, a real prospect, or, and it's at least something to work towards, you know, and, and that's part of why I care so much about the social transformation that I advocate for and want to see is because I think that this next thing that we're at the doorstep of post-humanism it's like it's something that it could be so good or so bad <laughs> you know like if we let the oligarchs continue to run this shit then they're just gonna they're just gonna keep this for themselves you know if we don't change the the our conception of ourselves from being individual isolated consumers to being members of a of a collective community that is doing this thing called life together you know if we don't make that shift then this is going to this is going to be really bad you know <laughs> then the 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 inequality that we see now the horrific you know gilded age type inequality that we have now there'll be nothing compared to the bifurcation of the two-tiered reality once we spin off into different species because they don't allow the enhancement technologies that they're giving to their own kids to come to go to the poor people
You know, like they're, they're, we're going to, it's already a tale of two cities in the world and in America and everywhere, <laughs> but we ain't seen nothing yet, you know, compared to what transhumanism will do if we don't reorganize society. <laughs> like there's a great book, uh, James Hughes, awesome futurist, wrote a book called um, Citizen Cyborg. It's about this. It's really good. Uh, highly recommend it. That's just the ideological component of posthumanism, but there's also the technological component, which is the hard takeoff of AI and the singularity and the intelligence explosion and how, you know, we're going to lose control real quick of this broader system, some Skynet shit. Like, I don't know, like, I don't think it's going to, I mean, I hope that it doesn't turn on humanity and, you know, treat us as the problem uh, that, you know, for example, endangered species probably see us as. <laughs> but I do think that we're going to lose control of it. I, I think that it's, you know, it's going to, it's going to be able to recursively self-improve to the extent where it, 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 we, we, we will lose the ability to even know what it's doing or thinking, you know? Um, and so I think that, you know, well, there's a lot of doom and gloom scenarios out there that people paint about that and it could be the end of, you know, everything. But like, I, I really think that, you know, I mean, and that's part, I mean, that's part of why, what I'm, why I hope that we are able to, you know, use atomically precise manufacturing to end the wars and the extraction and the ecosystem collapsing that we're fucking doing, you know, um, just like, you know, people are still cutting down trees in the forest. Like people are still deforesting right now. Like, um, so with shit like that, you know, it's like, like, I think, I do think that the, that strong AI will be smart enough that it will be able to stop us from doing the ecocidal things that human in industry is doing. I think it will be able, it will be smart enough to stop that stuff without killing us <laughs> without like i think that it will be but like i'm real curious how that how it's gonna go you know um because that's when a big part of why it's so exciting to be alive you know like if people don't appreciate you know a lot of times people say oh i wish i was i wish i had been born in a different era in a previous era but not at all man you know as much as i love the 60s and would love to have been alive in the 60s I really do think that this age that we're in right now, you know, this um, cybernetic paradigm where we're playing with the boundaries of reality and what it means to exist. <laughs> like, I think that this is uh, the best time that we could possibly, you know, the best time to be alive that has ever existed. Um, you know, I, and the future might be better, it might be better, but I think right now is a better than any time beforehand. So I really hope everyone, you know, appreciates this gift that you've been given, um, existence in this time, you know, as existence is always a gift, but existence in this time right now is a massive gift, especially since we're at this hinge point where we have so much, we really do have so much, you know, sway over how this goes, you know, how, how this, how this, how the unfoldment of the 21st century goes, you know, it's like, it's going to determine, you know, like what we do, what we do as people in now, in this time is going to determine 
the whole future of the planet, the whole future of every species, the whole species, the whole future of whether or not the human species continues or goes extinct and forecloses on all the future lives and existences of any future humans that will be robbed of birth <laughs> if we go extinct. You know, it's we're we're at this moment. We have so much. You know, we're, it's a hinge point. You know, and that's part of why. I don't know. So I encourage everyone to be a philosopher, you know, study wisdom, love wisdom, you know, be about it, you know, because it's, uh, otherwise, you know, what are you doing? You know, it's like, nothing else really matters. You know, if you're not, you know, if it all comes down to enjoying and improving existence. And so philosophy, it seems like the, you know, it, it, I might have, I don't know, I always talk about this, but there's a lot of life to live and there's a lot of great, great art out there. There's a lot of great people, you know, it's like, you know, I used to hate people, but, you know, real large, but, you know, I, over the past while I've, you know, I've grown to, I mean, still be frustrated with them, but, you know, accept them for all their flaws, you know, people are people and, you know, if they're just assholes because society made them like that you know and if we change society then we can all have a better time of it you know it could be better for all of us if we make it better you know <clears throat> and change some of these systems and work together to change some of these systems that are keeping all of us oppressed <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> fighting with each other and you know scrambling for scraps because, you know, there's so, you know, it's like I said, it's the richest country in the history of the fucking planet. There's, you know, the top 1% are sitting on more money than, you know, like, it's insane. <laughs> there's three guys that own more wealth than the bottom 90% of America. That's what he always says. You know, it's like, we got, we, we can prosper. We could. We just change a lot of these systems and un- maldistribute the resources in society <laughs> as because they were they were not equitably distributed in the first place so on that grounds alone are justified in establishing a more egalitarian society with economic rights and dignity for all people in society including these mysterious robot beings that are entering our lives and the animals that we coexist with you know so anyways that was a probably much longer synopsis than i <laughs> than i originally planned to do today for this episode and uh i hope i hope you guys will still be interested in the book <laughs> given that i just gave away a lot of the point of it the, the argument i'm making because I mean, I, I do go through and make the arguments for all these things that I've outlined. This is just, I've just given you an outline of what I'm arguing for, not necessarily the arguments for them, you know, if that makes sense. This is complicated shit, you know, it's like the whole, it's civil, this is civilization that we're talking about. It's like a very big thing. And uh, I hope that, I don't know, how do I wrap this up? <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'll just wrap this up by saying, all great changes are preceded by chaos and so any chaotic confusion that you see in the world take it as a sign that nothing is set in stone 
that the tyrannies of the past are losing their grip. And we're in the chrysalis right now. This chaos that we're living through, this we're the goop in the chrysalis, you know? Capitalism, consumer society was a caterpillar, you know? And it, we're now in the cauldron from which will be birthed this new being, the butterfly of a utopian society that we're just on the verge of. It's being birthed right now. We are birthing it. If you're watching this video, you're probably conscious enough to be a part of this broader process of birthing this new civilization, you know, that will bring prosperity the likes of which, you know, we've never seen before. So anyways, um, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, please subscribe and uh, especially on YouTube, the, I'm like really trying to grow the YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this on Facebook or podcast, check out the YouTube channel. There's a video available. The main reason I would say subscribe is just so that you'll be notified when the book comes out. Cause that's, um, you know, like the Facebook page, Utopian Cartography and uh, the YouTube channel, Utopian Cartography, and um, you'll get a heads up when the book comes out. And uh, even hit me up on Facebook and drop me a message on, Utop on the Utopian Cartography Facebook page that you'd like to see, or you'd like to be notified when this book is published, because um, I'm trying to get the word out there that uh, it's coming. And sorry, I can't reveal the title yet. I'm, I love the title too much to give it away. <laughs> But uh, I know you guys will enjoy this book, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed this expedition falling, to discover the path to you. I love you guys. I'm Neon Felicity. Yeah. Thanks for watching. Falling, Thanks for watching. Love you guys. On my walk to the fortress, I talk with the forces that war with me, fall forwards as I awkwardly trip. But I caught myself quickly, begotten in hell's pits. My spells hit with the strength of ten mammoths. When I trip in my pen answers, I fall forward like Zen mantras. Cause backwards is a trap. When night calls, I'm cautious. If I'm lacking in capacity, when light calls, I'm conscious. My habits are perhaps perilous. But consider the world we live in. We're rabbits and rats, verily, with glittering pearls that were given. But all that glitters is not gold. Watch your soul if you fall backwards. Fall back, kid. It's a trap it's entrapment like crack bids these blasted idiots are all backwards and blinded i track what the time is and wrap diamonds to pass obstacles in my path i topple them and cash myself back in time as i fall forwards fall forward
I've got a race to run Walk or dance, the sun's got me in a trance So I'm tripping and falling forward Stalling my morbid thoughts Blink twice and think thrice as much as I'm supposed to I blush as I'm coasting on the luscious of oceans Combusting these doses of potent potions Dope as opiates, I fall forward in a growth of foliage All is the source in this opus to holiness Yet not like the Pope and his dopies I know that I'm low-key, local like Loki, I vote for a Hopi president, no feet precedent, cold feet resident, lotus speech testaments, don't press rewind, gotta stay on track, bless your meek minds, I pray for contacts with other densities, discover immensity, there's quite a ways to trek, it's been days since I slept, but this isn't sleepwalking, you can keep gawking, and me I'll keep talking, walk till I trip, Cough when I slip and fall forward, fall forward, forward, falling forward, falling, falling, falling forward, falling, falling, falling forward, falling, falling, falling forward. to stay on track.